This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever wondered how leisure activities got their start? We have to go all the way back to the 1800s to look at some of them. That's when Britain enacted the 10-hour act. This restricted the amount of hours women and children could work in places like textile mills from working more than 10 hours a day. A bit of a contrast from the typical 16-hour workday. That led to people trying to find out what they could do in their leisure time. Well, joining us to talk about what some of those activities looked like is Jackie Turner, Associate Professor of Modern British History at the University of Reading. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've never really thought about when leisure activities started, but this is a pretty fascinating look at the 10-hour act that gave people a bit more time in the day then we saw these uh, different activities come about. What uh, did we see kind of change as far as uh, the birth of leisure activities? I think you hit the nail on the head there. We see lots of legislative change around working practices. So we see gradually, we see the introduction of a 10-hour day, of an 8-hour day, 1901 for factory workers. Even down to 1912, we see shop and retail workers and we see a shorter working week, and it gives the working classes more leisure time. In Britain as well, during that same period, we see we see an outburst and a huge building of railways. And seaside towns spring up at the end of railways, and people just demand more leisure activity. Hmm. Well, it's so interesting and, and looking at that and kind of the, the geography of it and where people went. But it does seem a little different in what uh, if you asked somebody about leisure activities today, they might uh, say sports or or other uh, kinds of games and such. There were some different games uh, when, when this started happening in the 1800s. Um, things like kicking people in the shins. <laughs> kicking people in the shins is the oldest um, British martial art believe it or not. And yeah, they would kick people, would have tournaments, they would, in the lot of this was in the countryside, they would dress in smocks, and they would literally kick each other in the shins until someone would yield. But in the, in the towns, in the working class towns, where a lot of people wore wooden clogs, they did it there too. Can you imagine <laughs> being kicked in the shins with, working, with, with clogs, heavy wooden clogs, until you gave in? But yeah, it was one of those crazy things that happened. Yeah, I'm but just. It wasn't the only one, Jill, that you <laughs> knew. There were other ones. Welly wanging. How far could you throw Wellington boots? Bog snorkeling. Rolling cheeses. Carrying your wife. Worm charming. There was all these weird and wonderful things that Victoria. <laughs> Well, it's uh, it's it's interesting to think of that conversation. If even if you go back to the kicking each other with clogs, that somebody would have had to come up with that idea, and then people would have had to agree with it, saying, "Yes, that sounds like a fun idea. Let's do that in our spare time." Yeah, I I I, I don't think I can comment on actually the people who started who started it. Coming from a working class background myself, I'm not sure I would volunteer. Uh, what is gurning and, uh, and and how did this all come about? Gurning is amazing. Gurning has been around really since the 13th century. But Victorians love to organize things. Everything had to be codified and have rules. So even gurning, alongside lots of other sports, even gurning during that period, becomes it becomes a more organized sport. And gurning you would put um, a huge uh, horse collar around your head, poke your head through, and then you would pull the weirdest, the funniest face you could imagine. Quite often, it was trying to get your bottom jaw or your lip as far up as you could. 
and it became it, it still is today um it, the national gurning championships are held in cumbria in the north of england today and that's amazing too that not only did that become an event but like you say it's a world championship and then at 1267 it's hard to think that there is a championship today that goes all the way back to the 1200s absolutely i can't think of another one <laughs> Um, uh, I guess this would be also kind of early stage photography or uh, kind of making images, these stereoscopic images, uh, making the the first, I guess the first kind of recorded illusion of of three dimensions, three dimensionality uh, by by using photographs. What were people doing here? Well, what they did, to make that effect, all they needed to do was take two photographs of the same object just from very slightly different positions. And then you place them side by side. And it's a little bit, you know, like those, um, you you know, today we can get books and there's lots of dots and you go slightly cross-eyed and you're supposed to be able to see an image come through in 3D. Well, it was a similar idea in the Victorian period. They'd take a number of photographs, put them very close together. You'd stare in the middle and your peripheral vision would turn them into one 3D image. Hmm. And that became something for leisure time as well. I mean, I guess that that makes sense. Uh, One of the other uh, things that came about, this one to me, out of all of them, uh, kind of uh, seems easier to kind of see the path on how this would have become a thing. And that was creating love tokens, because it does seem like that's kind of always been there in some way, shape, or form. But, of course, this was also different, how, how crafting these basic love, love tokens came about. Yes. So love tokens, you know, in the Victorian times, they, they were synonymous with emotion. And they were synonymous with love. They were quite often flat, round discs, and people would intertwine, a little bit like we do when we're, when we're young, and we write our initials and we intertwine them with the object of our affections, initials, on the covers of our books. Well, it is exactly the same. It was uh, covered, it was a round flat token, and they would engrave and intertwine uh, their lover's initials on, on those tokens, or even their, their names. And that's, that's, it's not as easy to make as today as we think, but it's basically bashing a coin flat and actually doing that engraving. I understand with the love tokens as well, it was love tokens for people that were perhaps romantically interested in each other, but also quite significant. They also went into scenarios with prisoners mm-hmm. and and linked in one at the side of a hospital. Yes, yes. That, that's the other side. I mean, we think about romantic love tokens in that way, but there are other tokens of affection Sometimes of desperation as well. So prisoners who were sentenced in Britain to transportation to Australia, they often made love, love tokens for those that they were forcibly separated from. And quite often they would cut them in half so that when they got back together, the two parts would meet. So that happened a lot. But one of the most interesting and something that I've seen, uh, I've been privileged to see quite a few times, is the Foundling Hospital in London was a place where desperate women, uh, lots of the time single mothers, um, who couldn't afford to keep their children, would literally leave their children on the steps of the Foundling Hospital. And with their children, they would leave these tiny little tokens. Sometimes it was just a button. These were very poor people. It was a button or part of a coin, again, something broken in half, even sometimes a, a nutshell, anything that they had, and they would leave them with their child to say, that's my baby. And one day when I go and get them back, I know what I've left them with. Hmm. And on the Foundling Hospital today, we have the Foundling Museum. And you can go into the Foundling Museum and you can see the most emotional. It's really difficult to go in there without emotion. You can see an exhibition of all these wonderful, tiny, tiny tokens on the surface, they're insignificant, but they meant so much to people. 
Well, what an interesting look back at the birth of leisure activities. And again, like you said, the fact that there are there are still world gurning championships to this day. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Turner, for, for taking us back and uh, talking about how all of these activities started. What uh, an interesting look. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time for The View from Victoria. Let's check in once again with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning to you. Good morning. Those Taylor Swift songs, they're hyping me up. 6.30 in the morning, they're getting me going. <laughs> the, the biggest conversation of the morning, Rob, is which Taylor Swift song are we playing today? Well, there's so many, so we'll, we can go for weeks. <laughs> we sure can. Yes, there's there's no stopping us. So I'm glad that you are enjoying those. Are you having any, any uh, in case people don't know the story behind that, if they weren't uh, listening on uh, Monday, is having any remorse over not getting Taylor Swift tickets? I am a little bit. I am a little bit. You see a lot of people talking about getting them, people talking about flipping them for cash. But, you know, you got to be part of the solution, not the problem. So I just can't. I just am not a ticket scalper at my core, I guess. Fair enough. Fair enough. It is not for everybody. There there you go. We'll just continue listening to Taylor on uh, the uh, when we right before we uh, talk to you. Uh, Rob, let's uh, talk a little bit about the tour. We uh, all saw David Eby, some of the other ministers in the fire affected areas of BC. Uh, he was uh, taking that tour yesterday. Yeah, he was. Uh, you know, he got uh, kind of a mixed bag. He heard some incredible stories from people, and we only captured a few of them from what we could see by camera. But he did meet, for example, um, with James Toma, who is chief of what uh, used to be called the Little Shushwap Lake Nation. And he had this incredible story he told the premier. Uh, he broke down telling it. EB kind of put his hand on his arm and and got him some uh, some Kleenex. He talked about staying, uh, hearing the evacuation orders, trying to fight the fire on Friday night uh, near his house. Uh, he ended up watching his home go up in flames. He barely got his wife out. He said just with uh, minutes to spare, they saved their cat. They uh, were facing 40 kilometer an hour winds. They escaped uh, to underneath a bridge where they spent an hour and a half with fire roaring all around them before um, they were rescued by boaters, and these they were even trying to tell the boaters, it might be too dangerous for you to come in and, and rescue us. Think of yourselves, but the boaters came uh, as well. And so he's telling the premier this story, and you can see uh, the premier who was at the a Kamloops Evacuation Center at the time being being very moved by these kind of stories. And, and you know, in the news update, uh, we're talking about people who are very thankful to the municipal departments as well, who are mainly in the structural protection area, trying to save people's homes and, you know, a lot of goodwill, a lot of thanks uh, being shared there too. So I think that was the positive part of it. But, you know, as always, there's, there is another part of, uh, of the reception that he would have faced as well. Right. And this is uh, people who uh, maybe weren't overly impressed with the communication that they were receiving. And this whole idea and something that, that you've been talking about on mischief or, or taking fire suppression equipment and a, a very different story, depending on who you ask. Yeah, I think the BC Wildfire Service, you know, and deserves all the praise in the world. But in this particular case, um, they are are getting an earful of criticism because they have described what happened in the North Shuswap area as theft and mischief from people moving their equipment around. And the premier heard directly from some of those North Shuswap people uh, in the kind of Scotch Creek area at the evacuation camp yesterday who said, um, no. You know, that, that that is not what happened, um, that the uh, that there are people who stayed, uh, filled up the wildfire generators, moved the sprinklers around when no one was there to, and saved homes. And that when wildfire crews arrived later and discovered their gear had been moved, 
they counted that as theft, even though the gear came back. And so that message from the wildfire service went all the way up the chain of command until the premier, uh, emergency minister Bowen Ma and forest minister Bruce Ralston are saying it out loud at press conferences. People, stop stealing gear from the wildfire service. And that's not entirely what happened. And so uh, the premier heard that directly. He also heard frustration that the RCMP are cutting off the supply routes to, to people who are still stuck or still fighting fires in the North Shoe Swap. And he so he got that as well. I think he also heard, and he addressed this a little bit from some of the MLAs uh, and, and some of the evacuation uh, center people, I think admit this too, that it's taken a long time to get some people processed through the system uh, from the evacuation center and in some cases uh, days to get them through that system and get them the hotel room, uh, hotel room or the help that they need. Um, and he did make it to uh, Kelowna where he was talking to people at the command post there. And so he, he came out afterwards and said, absolutely unacceptable. People are having to wait in their cars uh, and can't get a hotel room. And so he's he's put extra personnel on the emergency evacuation side to try and speed that up. But clearly some logistical headaches uh, there that people were upset about as well. Right. And that couldn't have been only because there weren't rooms or there wasn't space. I know that was part of the reason why uh, the province brought in those travel restrictions, which uh, have now been been lifted. And I know a lot of tourism operators will be happy about that. But uh, was it just uh, there were just so many people and it took that long or, or was he given any reason as to why it was taking so long to process some people? Yeah, well, I think, you know, they did say that they had enough hotel rooms by the end, that that travel order, the ban to the region, the ban to uh, using a hotel room, if you did come, uh, freed up enough space eventually. But they had this big crush of people uh, when all of those uh, those fires kind of, um, you know, took off with the high winds in, on the Friday and sort of the Saturday. And it looks like it just has overwhelmed the system and that the, the systems that were being used by Emergency Management BC just couldn't keep up. The people couldn't keep up. And you had these reports of very long wait. So he's adding more people now. I think it's probably a little too late to address the worst of it. But, um, you know, that that's what happens in a fluid situation when you have unprecedented evacuations of, you know, an urban center um, that the system just can't keep up. Continuing now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, some updates when it comes to BC ferries, but not the update probably people were hoping to hear. No, the coastal ships continued to be cursed. Uh, you remember um, the coastal celebration broke down recently at kind of a key time on the Swartz Bay uh, to Tawasson route causing chaos. The coastal renaissance, which is on the Duke Point to Tawasson route, that has broken down. And BC Ferries yesterday saying it's going to be until mid-October until they fix a problem with the motor. They're not even sure if it, uh, it, needs to, it can be fixed here. It might have to be sent to Germany where the coastal ships were built. Uh, they weren't built here. They were built in Germany because it was cheaper, 40% cheaper to build them back in 2007. And now they're having trouble with parts and maybe having to send parts back. So there was a question to BC Ferries yesterday. Are these things lemons, <laughs> big floating lemons? Uh, and their answer is no, no, you know, like uh, we're, we're fixing them. Um, but there's kind of a ripple effect of all of these outages. This one on Duke Point, which is arguably a less busy route than Swartz Bay, but there's still 7,500 reservations they've got to rebook for before Labor Day. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to walk on, parking lots are going to be full, don't show up with other reservation on that route. So it, it, it is a problem, another headache in a summer of headaches uh, for BC Ferries. And good on them, I suppose, for getting out ahead of it and letting people know that you're going to be contacted if you have a, a reservation. And like you said, it's going to be very, very busy. But also, I would imagine too, and like you said, questions about these ferries and where they were built. Uh, my guess is they are no longer under warranty, but does no. this uh, does this sort raise questions about building ferries in the future maybe uh, maybe we find a different builder yeah like everything uh you know it's not under warranty when you need to fix it um and so they're gonna have to pay money to get this fixed and it could be expensive but you're right so bc ferry ceo nicholas Jimenez yesterday saying they're gonna spend two billion dollars on new ships very soon some will replace the kind of gulf islands island class ships the second 
uh, kind of batch will replace those C-class vessels. So from the 70s and 80s, you know, when you get on them, they're called the Queen of whatever, the Queen of Coquitlam, the Queen of Surrey. Uh, those ships will be replaced. And it'll be a perpetual question for BC ferries like it has for decades. Do you build them here in BC and pay more? And do you end up potentially, you know, the most infamous example of that, the fast cat ferries that didn't work and we <laughs> lost tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on them in the 90s? Or do you send them overseas? You know, we built ships in Poland for the Salish class vessels. We built them in Germany. You save money, but you don't do anything for the shipbuilding industry here in BC. So it is a question BC Ferries is going to face. I imagine they are not going to be able to answer it themselves. The thumb of the new Democrat government will be heavy on the scale of where ferries builds those ships. And you can see a scenario where the new Democrats, um, you know, this, this tranche of new Democrats who don't really date back to the nineties don't understand <laughs> the, the problems that occurred there, but, and, and they may force the ships to be built in BC and who knows, they might be great, but it'll be a very sensitive question and, and a big one that BC ferries is going to have to deal with pretty soon. Right. And really what people just want are vessels that don't break down and that mm -hmm. you can have some kind of surety that if you're going on a BC ferry, whether you're a tourist or whether you're somebody living on the island or that uses ferries on a regular basis, just to, you want a, a reliable system. And, you know, BC Ferries argument is it is reliable. It's like 98% reliable. It's kind of amazing when you go on the ships to think that we have this system here that every hour you can get on a gigantic cruise ship sized <laughs> ship and get on it and sail across and the ship docks and you've eaten a, a white spot burger and you get off the ship and then it turns around and goes right back. And it does that all day, every day, um, all year. There's no sort of days that the, the ships aren't sailing. And things break down, your car breaks down. I think the question for BC Ferries, though, is, you know, um, are, are there problems with this type of ship? They're, they're now pulling um, the maintenance records for the other ones, making sure they don't have the same number two drive motor problem. You know, like at some point when your car keeps breaking down, you start looking and saying, are, are other Kias in this model uh, you know, prone to these problems? And that's what BC Ferries is doing now. Yes, there will always be breakdowns, but um, this has been a bad summer for them. And People are kind of fed up with, uh, I think the if you have any goodwill to BC Ferries uh, and you're willing to let things go, probably that's been exhausted after this summer of experiences. Right. And but but like you say, sure, it is it is great that they are always there. And as we know, part of the highway system. But I think it was said during the news conference yesterday, too, that the, the spike in issues with the C-Class, the coastal renaissance and the close uh, coastal celebration uh, can be chalked up to their age and their usage. Well, then mm -hmm. the, the, it seems like maybe there could be a better plan than rather than uh, just having these ships that are breaking down all the time. Yeah, they're they're could be a better plan and that could be buying new ferries but the minute you start buying new ferries you start paying more to use the ferries and this is the classic situation that any government has on any crown corp and this is not really a crown corp but it basically is you know you want to keep fares low that's the political day-to-day -day juice that makes you popular so you push off building new things whether it's in hydro whether it's in uh, any other corporation to keep fares low, you delay the investments in the future. And now, BC Ferries, the chickens have come home to roost. They're going to have to spend billions on new ships. And guess what? You will pay for that. Your fare will go up, and you will hate that. Mm. And that is the problem that Ferries has had for, for many years now, is government wanting to keep the fares low at the expense of really planning for the future. And you can't have it both ways. And that, that will make people uh, ticked off as well when their, their tickets start to go up uh, and they start being upset about that. It's a good point and a delicate balance, isn't it? Because, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing the 7,500 people who are going to be contacted to have their reservations changed, if they can get on another boat, great. But you're right, nobody wants to pay double or wants to pay a whole lot more. No, and you know, they're moving another boat, I think from the Langdale route over to the Duke Point route. That's not really going to uh, cover it. So yeah, people are going to be inconvenienced. Uh, right up until Labor Day. It's funny because every time something goes wrong, we point out how close BC Ferries is to one of the busiest weekends of the year. You know, they have the BC Day long weekend, the Labor Day long weekend. There's the long weekend in July. Like every four weeks, they are in this massive weekend. And, and that's that exasperates the problems that they have. All right, Rob, we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks so much. 
Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. As you know, there are still several wildfires burning in BC and a lot of questions are being asked about fighting those fires, suppressing the fires and how to better perhaps manage the forests of this province. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Justin Angle, Associate Professor in the Department of Business. He also hosts A New Angle, which is a podcast at the University of Montana. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We are dealing with a lot of wildfires in B.C. and we have had some, well, about 70 structures and one of the biggest fires destroyed. What are your thoughts on when it comes to suppressing fires and how we're fighting fires and how things have changed in that area? Gosh, I, I think, the, you know, when, when, when we get fires this time of the year, our, our hands are pretty tied. Full suppression sort of has to be the strategy employed by the agencies that fight fire. Um, although in many cases it's um, less suppression and more just trying to wait it out for a, a season ending rain event. Um, to me, the question of suppression is not necessarily if it's appropriate now, it's, it's more along the lines of where are we allocating resources in general throughout the year? Um, you know, the suppression budget tends to dominate most of the resources allocated to the agencies and it'd be nice to see some of those resources get moved into you know things like prescribed burning and other kinds of treatment that can be deployed um, in a preventative way uh, throughout more of the year. Uh, things like looking at what's on the forest floor uh, and in BC specifically in, in some of our forests we've had the pine beetle which has left a lot a very dry kind of kind of dead wood is it is it looking do you think at the fuels and what the forests look like in the the non-wildfire season yeah I, I, I think that's right there there are, are, are long times of the year where it's appropriate to be looking at maybe introducing more fire onto the landscape with prescribed burning and controlled burning. Um, and then to your point about accumulated fuels, like we've been um, particularly here in the United States, and I think it's similar policy in BC as well, um, you know, suppressing fires and having that being a priority has led to the accumulation of fuels on the landscape and a lot of forests that um, are clogged up and and ready to, uh, you know, that overabundance of fuels makes, is a contributing factor to making the fires we experience during fire season um, more intense and, and more difficult to control and suppress. We've uh, seen, I think a lot of people have seen uh, the destruction in Maui, the town of Lahaina, and one of the images that came out was, uh, I know a lot of people were calling it the miracle house of Lahaina, and it's this one house that's still standing with just destruction all around it. And and, and one of the, the things that was being talked about about that house was it had river rock around it for a, for a section. It had a, a steel roof instead of a shingle roof. Is is that an example of maybe how we're going to have to change our building if we're talking about building in, in wildfire areas, making homes and structures more resistant? I think that's a big part of the equation here. Uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're seeing um, the level of destruction we're seeing with wildfires is how we've built and where we've built. We've continued to build uh, further and further into wildfire-prone areas. And um, in a lot of these areas are are more rural and have less uh, regulations and zoning codes and guidelines around uh, how things are built and the infrastructure to support that building, meaning roads and, and access for fire crews. So to your point about the specific way that homes are constructed, that's a, a big part of it, making your home more resilient. That could be the materials you use for your siding. That could be the materials you use for your roof um, in the basic construction. But it could also be how you maintain that home. Um, how do you design the landscaping? Do you keep vegetation uh, trimmed back from the home? Do you keep your gutters clean? Do you avoid um, allowing or do you avoid storing flammable materials under your deck, for example? Um, there's this concept of the home ignition zone. It's the area 
you know, immediately surrounding the home, and you can think of it as a set of concentric rings, the area immediately surrounding the home being kind of the most important to tend to first, but the risk factors continue as, as, as you move further from the home. Um, but yeah, how we build and where we build and then how we maintain the homes that we do have uh, is a big part of the equation. And that home in Lahaina that you're talking about is a great example. There are ways we can protect our homes. And you know, often in the media, we see the biggest risk to a home portrayed as this you know, large flaming front overtaking a structure. Much more often, the thing that causes a home to ignite is a floating ember lofted in from miles away and it finds a weak spot in a home. That could be a, a dirty gutter or a piece of vegetation that is um, touching a roof, for example. So yeah, um, how we build, where we build and how we maintain are, are big parts of the equation. And uh, and just kind of uh, going on that as well, the the personal uh, responsibility, I suppose, or looking at uh, per, homes and structures, and also uh, to go back how we started talking about suppression, uh, is it important as well though that we we still make sure that we're understanding the the importance of wildfires and that what that fires do also uh, promote healthy ecosystems? That there there is a good side to them, obviously not interface fires, but that there is a, a positive to wildfires absolutely wildfires are a vital part of ecosystems they're a vital part of forest health forests have adapted um, to have wildfire be a part of their life cycle Um, periodic fire is very normal in the historical record and a lot of species rely on fire both um, species of trees and other plants but also you know, birds and other mammals rely on periodic fire to to maintain a healthy balance in the ecosystem. So a certain amount of fire is necessary. Back to your initial question of the kind of conditions of our forests, the, the notion of suppressing fire and taking it out of the landscape completely has allowed uh, our, our forests to be out of balance. And so I think uh, we need to, to, to just understand that, yeah, yeah, fire is, is a scary thing and it's a destructive thing and it, and it is for good reason, but at the same time, it's a natural part of, of landscapes and ecosystems and we need to kind of understand that sometimes fire needs to play its uh, natural role and sometimes agencies need to be given the bandwidth to, um, to allow it to play that role. Certain fires should be maybe allowed to burn during certain times of the year if the conditions are right and they're not threatening. And then in some instances, we need to be introducing more fire to the landscape to kind of uh, restore the balance that we've lost. All right, uh, Dr. Engel, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Some new research, and this comes from various international studies, is showing pollution caused by wildfire smoke can lead to cognitive impairments. It can also cause post-traumatic stress and potentially increase the risk of some neurodegenerative diseases. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Anna Guns, pediatric intensive care doctor at Children's Hospital in Ontario. Doctor, thank you so much for being here to talk more about this. Thank you for having me. What are we looking at? So, or how concerned should we be about exposure to wildfire smoke and, and causing uh, these medical, these health issues? I think the, th- the way to think about it is that it's not unlike air pollution in general. And so there has been a lot of evidence looking at the short and long-term risks of air pollution in general and what's coming out with wildfire smoke exposure is similar and that's because a lot of the particulates are similar as well and some of them are actually quite small and can travel into your lungs into your bloodstream causing an inflammatory response in your body and so that's where we think some of these associations um, are likely to occur. Uh, because we do, I think it, it makes sense that if we're breathing in this particulate matter, and that's why we have the air advisory, the warnings, so we think about breathing it in and in our lungs, but I don't think we often make that connection that it can also have an impact on the brain. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a wild thing. Um, and I think that's why, you know, a lot of us are so worried about wildfire smoke. It, the consequences aren't just with the brain. Um, we also worry about, you know, heart disease and heart attacks and strokes as well. And so when we're, t- when we're thinking about exposures, what's different from, from general air pollution is that it is, um, you know, a time-limited piece. But when we have long-term exposure over periods of time, um, that's where that's where we can have these effects, and we'll start to understand more um, as these periods of wildfire smoke become more more common um, long term. But that's that's the you know that's the not light of heart. And I think I think the other thing about wildfire smoke is it's you know when we're talking about cognition and mental health, it's not just the exposure from these tiny little particulates that have been. Um, shown or are starting to be associated with these um, cognitive issues and with long-term air pollution we've seen the same as well as well as other psychiatric issues but we also have to think about you know the mental health impacts that are one associated with you know the awareness of this and the links of environmental destruction and climate change and that sort of deep-rooted stress and and distress that can be felt miles from the fires as well as the impact it has on kind of how it limits people and what they're doing if they're trying to, if they're really worried about this and trying to limit this. But also we have to think about everybody who's being evacuated or has been evacuated um, or is at risk of evacuation. And, you know, all of the stress that we know comes with a lot of uh, other disasters as well. So, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD. And so early intervention and support in communities after and during and I think as neighbors is also really important because it's a bit of a, a double hitter that way in the sense that these are scary life altering events and there was a study done a few years ago um, after the big fire and the big evacuation of Fort McMurray and they looked at youth actually um, and looked at their uh, psychological experiences one year or 18 months after and and the impacts on even you know uh, not just anxiety and depression but also self-esteem were 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 still evident there compared to other youth that were in a different community where that didn't happen so we need to think about this not just in terms of our exposure to the smoke and the health impacts that could be affecting us in the future um, but also the psychological burden burden and injury and how we can en masse start supporting each other to try to to minimize that risk Right. And and we certainly do see people uh, supporting each other and coming out and helping out in, in any way they ca- can uh, when it comes to uh, the loss and dealing with wildfires. Uh, you mentioned as well that the long term exposure when it comes to the smoke. Do the studies look at, at long term how much exposure actually is a dangerous level? So the way these any of these studies have to be done is that you have to have a population with a certain amount of exposure that you can compare to another one that hasn't. And so certainly there's studies that looked at even proximity to the wildfire smoke as well as the extent. Um, And certainly the closer you are (laughs) and the, the more exposure is, you know, is more, there's, there's more of a health risk. Um, But in terms of like a quantifiable amount, um, I'm not sure that that, um, it, you know, if there's a certain amount or value we could ascribe, you know, especially that's really helpful to us as people. I mean, certainly one of the most helpful things is the Air Quality Health Index right now, which actually looks at the particulates that we know to be harmful to human health and will give people a rating um, from low, moderate and high risk, depending on what the particulate matter is there and gives suggestions about how to modify um, exposure based on that. And I think that's the most helpful piece um, right now. But beyond that, I think there's, you know, there are things we can do to, to minimize our risk, like if, especially in maintaining our indoor air quality, having HVAC systems on our, um, all of our ventilation systems, even furnaces, um, you know, for, and trying to stay indoors when the air quality is bad and remembering that we can also gather indoors together. It's not like, I think, reminiscent of the pandemic and masks can help outdoors. So a surgical mask can filter about 25, 30% of the particles and an N95 uh, closer to 80%. 
So it's not perfect, but we can do those things as well. Um, as well as thinking like, you know, when the air quality is bad, that's not the time to exercise outside. And um, if it's hot as well, you know, that increases the risks of health. So making sure there are well-ventilated cooling centers that you can go to if you don't have air conditioning, those are all important. But beyond that, this is something that we're, we're living with now as well. So I think the other piece that's really important is that we have to be active in terms of demanding, uh, you know, better air quality. And that involves, you know, regulations and climate change and climate action. And that's also something that people can do um, from a psychological perspective to hopefully help them feel better as well. And for Canadians, there is a petition that's open in front of the House of Commons right now looking at um, legislating um, advertising for fossil fuels. Like we did with smoking and alcohol that people could sign on as well that can be helpful. But I think that is also something that we need to talk about whenever we're talking about personal risk of wildfire smoke. We have to talk about climate change um, and fossil fuels because that's the that's the larger piece um, that we that we don't necessarily feel like we have control over. But it's it's really important. All right, Dr. Guns, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our water supply and how wildfires could impact the quality of our water, what we should be concerned about. Joining us to do that is Monica Amelko, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Waterloo University, also Canada Research Chair in Water Science, Technology and Policy. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. I appreciate it. Well, it is something that whether you're in the fire zone or not can have a big impact. How concerned should we be about our drinking water and our water supply and uh, the threat of wildfires and what wildfires can do to that? I'm so glad that you're asking the question because, of course, water is essential for life, right? Without water, that's when we start to see the spread of disease. And we saw that the COVID-19 pandemic certainly taught us that, the importance of basic hygiene and sanitation. And so I think people would be surprised to find that, yes, wildfires can release contaminants um, that could potentially threaten health. But the good news there is that we have capacity to treat many of them. However, uh, I think people would also be surprised to learn that it's some of the aspects of water that are affected by fire that aren't health contaminants per se that can actually have very long-term impacts on our water supply and the ability to provide enough of it for all of the uses that we rely on uh, on those water supplies for. And when we talk about uh, the impacts of wildfires, I think we do tend to focus on the fires themselves and fire suppression. But after the fact, are are we looking at what could be introduced into the water supply, uh, be it dirt, metals or things that get into those rivers and lakes? Absolutely. So if we wanted to break it down a bit, um, we could say, okay, first and foremost, we think of the fires and the 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 change on the landscape, one of the immediate things people think of, and it's been in the news if we go back and think about what's happened in the U.S., for example, in the Rockies, we think of uh, debris flows where you actually literally have logs coming downstream uh, and filling up a reservoir and preventing us from being able to store enough water for the coming year, especially in areas that are reliant on snowmelt. So that's a concern. But once you get past that point, we start to, you can break things down and think about, okay, is the fire occurring in the built environment, the more urban, or we call it sometimes para-urban, that interfacial landscape, or is it occurring on a natural landscape? Because if it's occurring on the urban environment, we automatically worry about things like our water pipes in our house, for example. Are they being not even necessarily burned, but heated and uh, releasing chemicals into our water supply in our house? after the water's already been treated. So it's, it's sitting literally in the residual, um, the, that residual materials in our house. So that's one of the things we worry about. But even if we're, the fire is occurring on the forested landscape with not a whole lot of built material in it, we also worry about the, the sediments. Uh, and that's what one people think of frequently, uh, you know, the, the dirt or sediment in the material, it makes it unpleasant. But that material can carry things with it. 
Uh, and amongst them, you uh, rightfully mentioned metals. And of course, we know metals like mercury, for example, if we don't remove them from the water, um, they can make us sick. But fortunately, again, most contemporary water treatment plants have the capacity to deal with that. What they don't deal with so well are typically challenges associated with some of the nutrients like phosphorus and carbon, and those can wreak a lot of havoc. And so do we do we kind of uh, like you say, we have water treatment facilities and we uh, I think pride ourselves in B.C. at least on having some of the best drinking water there is the water that comes out out of the tap. Do we do we are we blindly, though, uh, thinking, okay this water is great or not even kind of open or looking at the fact that that these wildfires that, that could have an impact on it or could change the quality of our water? I think you're touching upon a really important point because first and foremost, people pride themselves on high quality water. Sometimes they refer to it as pristine. No water is pristine. All water requires some level of treatment. And at a minimum, that's disinfection for microorganisms. Even the deepest, highest quality groundwater can be exposed to viruses. So that's the first thing. But then the other part of it is how much infrastructure do we invest in? If we have high quality water, In a way, when there's a disturbance on the landscape, we have the most to lose. So absolutely, these systems can be pushed to a point that is beyond what they've been designed for. We don't, we don't, of course, we never, ever distribute unsafe water. There'd be a boil water advisory or even a shutdown. But if we want to have that water longer term, some of these impacts can last for years or even decades. Uh, And those tend to be the ones that are less common. So, for example, you can have a fire far away from you, but if that water is flowing downstream towards where your water intake is for your community, it might carry with it nutrients that can challenge your chemical dosing system. If you have a a chemical dosing system, which most systems do if they're removing sediments and solids, or they can bring with it uh, nutrients like phosphorus. And phosphorus is really important because you might not see impacts of a fire for five, six years. But when enough of that material makes it downstream, all of a sudden you can have algae blooms. And most people probably have heard of algae blooms because they can produce toxins. And those chemicals are not, maybe they might hurt you. They are, if they are high enough in concentration, they can definitely hurt you, which means we have to have even more sophisticated water treatment. So there can be these cascading impacts, not necessarily everywhere. And not every fire is going to have any impact necessarily, but they certainly can happen. And this is something we have to increasingly prepare for. Uh, do we need to look at then further purifying water as as residents having more water purification in our homes or or is it more at the level of water treatment plants that uh, your city or municipality uh, is the one uh, that's taking the lead in that? Well, I think it's really that's a really interesting question in and of itself, because certainly on the one hand, uh, you want your municipality to be appropriately planning for those potential scenarios. But. How are they going to prepare for what might be happening in the pipes of your own home? And so these are discussions that we need to have. You know, when I first started working in wildfire and water, I thought that that this was going to be a project. People around us said, why would you want to study that? You know, fast forward 15 years later, and these, this just keeps happening, and it's happening over and over again. And, and it's, we have fires on top of where fires have occurred. And it's not just the fires, it's the subsequent rainfall that carries that material off the landscape. So, you know, we as Canadians have to recognize this is our reality and it's not going to change. And so your question about who's responsible, I think we have to have joint initiatives to figure out what's going to be the most cost effective. Monica Amelko, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and talking more about water and water safety. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Monica Amelko is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Waterloo University, also Canada Research Chair in Water Science, Technology and Policy. This is Mornings with Simi. More than 60 million years ago, an asteroid struck the Earth that killed all non-avian dinosaurs and opened the doors to mammals dominating. So how did we go from rat-like creatures running around between the feet of dinosaurs to the top of the food chain? Kendra Tritz is an assistant professor in the UBC Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. And uh, Dr. Tritz is co-leading a multi-million 
million dollar research project looking at this very thing. And Kendra Tritz joins us on the line now. Kritz, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. This seems like a very interesting study. How do you even begin? Yeah, well, it begins with, first of all, a really good team. Uh, So this is a collaborative grant, it's called, where we have many different scientists working across seven collaborating institutions across North America. And we have paleontologists, we have paleobotanists, we have people looking at the chemistry of past environments, uh, the soils, the rocks themselves. So we're trying to get this really big picture of what the Earth looked like at this time period. Um, So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is having a really excellent fossil record so we can actually explore what mammals were like at this time period. And we have both of those things. I understand a lot of this is focused as well on teeth and and looking at these well-preserved fossilized teeth. What can you learn from that? Yes, absolutely. So teeth are a really critical part of understanding what these mammals were like. Teeth are very hard, so they enter the fossil record and they stay preserved for you know, millions of years. And what's also really interesting about teeth, and particularly your tooth enamel, is that because it's so hard um, and it only really forms once during your life, it records these chemical signatures of things like your diet, the kind of climate that you lived in, um, whether or not you've been you know, traveling between different geographical regions. So what my research group at UBC does is we do chemical analysis on this fossil tooth enamel, and we can reconstruct things like um, diet and which mammals were where on the food chain and those kinds of things. So teeth are a critical part of this whole study. Hmm. How does it? How does that actually work, though, that when you look at the fossilized teeth, how does the enamel actually record all of that? Yeah, so basically what we'll have to do is we go and we have to drill a little bit of the teeth. So you can't, you have to actually analyze it chemically. Um, and we can combine this with other lines of evidence for what these mammals might have been doing in their ecosystems just by looking at the shape of those teeth. Um, you know, if you think about a carnivore, they have sharp teeth that slice this meat versus herbivores, which have teeth with big flat grinding surfaces to eat lots of plant material. So we can just look at the shape of the teeth themselves, but then we can also drill a little bit of that enamel and we collect powder uh, and then we can analyze the actual uh, elements in that enamel, things like carbon, calcium, magnesium, oxygen, all of that is all stored within the teeth itself. So that's what we're actually looking at when we're analyzing this tooth enamel. Hmm. So you would be able to know things then, uh, if, say, a changing diet, would that then tell you kind of how the planet was changing or if new uh, types of food were becoming available? Yes, definitely. And what's really interesting about these mammals in particular, the ones that survived the asteroid impact that killed off the dinosaurs and then went on to evolve to become all this incredible mammal diversity that we have on the planet, is that a number of other changes occurred at the same time um, as changes in their teeth. So we knew that body size was getting bigger. Um, The mammals that survived the asteroid impact were quite small, like 10 uh, kilograms or less. And then they increased in size to up to 100 kilograms within a few hundred thousand years, which is very impressive. And so what we really want to know is alongside these changes in body size, um, the evolution of new species, with their diet actually changing too. And that's something that we haven't had a really clear picture of uh, up until this point. And is the idea then this will also give us a better idea, not that we like to think about mass extinction events, but uh, given that uh, if we were to see that again, does this give us a better idea on how the world would respond or how things would like, would lo- what things would look like then moving forward from that? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the main goals of this project. So basically, you know, the world when the dinosaurs were around the end Cretaceous was a really different world. It was hot. Uh, It was kind of a very, you know, what we think of as a greenhouse world. It was that, um, you know, the the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere could have been as much as 2000 ppm. It was much warmer today. 
And then once the asteroid struck, it threw a lot of debris up into the atmosphere, and it kind of put Earth into this sort of nuclear winter-type uh, climate. So pretty much overnight, we went from a very warm planet full of dinosaurs to a much colder planet with all these catastrophic events happening, uh, lots of fires and tidal waves and things like that. So it's this instantaneous climatic change um, and all these different catastrophes happening as well. And then 75% of life on Earth went extinct. And you have these survivors. And what we're really looking at is how long does it take in the wake of this cataclysmic event that kills off all of these different organisms on Earth, uh, how long does it take for the Earth to actually rebuild? And what might the Earth actually look like after another mass extinction event? And when do you anticipate you might have some of the answers? Well, we're starting to get some answers now. So there's the team of paleontologists that are going out. Uh, they've been working at this site called Corral Bluff uh, in the Denver Basin, which is our main uh, fossil site of focus. It records an incredible diversity of mammal fossils and mammal skulls. Um, they're still working and they're going to continue to work uh, over the next five years. And they were going to start ramping up the chemical analyses of these fossils over the next couple of years. So in the next few years, we should have some results coming out. And we'll start to get a more clearer picture of what the world was like at this time period. Fascinating research. Uh, Kendra Kritz, thank you so much for sharing this with us this morning. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That is Kendra Kritz, Assistant Professor of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. This is Mornings with Simi. We are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team at 604-695-LORI, or you can visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Lori, great to chat with you again. You as well. How have you been? So, so good. Uh, very, very well. How about you? Uh, everything is good. Just fighting a bit of a summer cold. Other than that, markets are in the green this morning, so that's good news. Um, we're really waiting for the Jackson Hole Summit on Friday morning. This is where we're going to see Fed uh, Chair Jerome Powell speak. We're going to get you know some more insight on their position on interest rates and inflation in the near term. Uh, with so much uncertainty over um, you know the U.S. economic outlook, investors are going to be paying very close attention to that. Right. So that's happening on Friday. So, yeah, I think a lot of attention and people taking some time out to, to really pay attention or to, to listen to that. Exactly. And then uh, some other news that was out there is the uh, S&P Global um, downgraded multiple U.S. Uh, bank credit ratings. Uh, and this is following what Moody's had already done. Again, this is a lot of those mid-tier or smaller banks. And the markets really didn't react to that um, just because, again, it's old news. We already went through the kind of mini banking crisis that we did in February, March there, where they, again, quickly found a solution so it didn't become a bigger problem. And I think that's what investors focused on. So these downgrades really are having very little to, uh, to no effect on share prices or the markets in general. Really why the markets have been in the red, uh, in my opinion, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some stronger economic data, um, even consumers are very strong. And again, that's negative for the idea that they're going to stop raising rates. Although most believe in Canada and in the US that they will pause uh, in September's meeting. Interesting. Uh, what about Canadian banks? Uh, what are we seeing happening there? Yeah, they're going to be reporting um, this week, which is uh, the first of the five major banks to report. Uh, and what we're expecting is um, somewhat strong earnings. But what we don't know is, again, is how much capital do they have to keep on the sidelines for loan loss provisions? So this can have a negative consequence for banks, right? They have less money to work with. So we'll be taking a look at uh, TD and Royal, uh, where their earnings are coming out tomorrow. Which is always an interesting one, because even when the number, it might not be the number the banks are looking for, it always seems like a huge number if you're the bank customer. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Especially when you're paying all those fees uh, when you're when you're doing your regular banking, even. Um, however, in in light of higher rates, uh, banks have had actually pretty decent earnings, uh, whether it's the U.S. or Canada, over the last uh, couple quarters. Uh, but they are forecasting a decline in third quarter revenue for 
their capital markets business again for um, you know investment deals and so on. That's been very slow last year and this year. It's not a type of business that we really do, but uh, a lot of the investment firms are, are seeing a slowdown in that area. All right, so we'll learn more uh, about the Canadian banks, the earnings, uh, the kickoff tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit about housing prices uh, because that's always uh, in the news and depending on who you ask. But uh, single-family homes in Vancouver, uh, probably not a huge surprise that we're seeing those prices go up and continue to go up. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it's a bit of a surprise. It's um, just with rates going as high as they have and people having to get approved at the banks, you know, even higher than what the current rate is at. Um, you know, I think that that is uh, a, a deterrent for sure, right? What you used to be able to afford, paying a mortgage at 2% is very different than at 6%. And so single family home prices for July rose about 2.5% from June. Um, this was the fourth consecutive month of increases in Vancouver. Single family homes rose more than the rest of the country. Um, also by uh, 3.9% in July, Abbotsford was up 7%. So those of you in Abbotsford, your home prices are going up. That's uh, that's good news because Abbotsford and Chilliwack were uh, harder hit when we had that uh, real estate pullback. Remember um, real estate prices about six months ago, uh, had pulled back about 15% uh, in the lower mainland. And so that is recovered. And uh, even Chilliwack at one point was down 25%. So I don't know uh, if this is here to stay. I don't believe it currently. I think that next year we'd have to see some sort of real estate correction uh, if indeed uh, the Bank of Canada doesn't start reducing rates at some point. And again, we're kind of far away from that because we're still talking about them increasing rates. So we'll be looking at that going forward. We will uh, definitely be keeping an eye on that one. Uh, let's talk about housing, but this is something uh, that I think uh, maybe not everybody has this issue, but if you do, it's not the worst problem to have. And this is all about keeping the cottage or the family cabin, that recreational property, keeping it in the family. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's, it's always, you know, brings good memories and experiences for those families that do have uh, a cottage or cabin. And again, a lot of people in Vancouver have places in Whistler or the Okanagan, things like that. And um, and the the issue that we keep running into is, is they want to leave it to their kids. And that's great. Except what happens if one kid doesn't want it? Um, and then, uh, you, you know, you've passed away and you don't want uh, the two siblings fighting, right? And so what you want to do is just make sure that you set it up properly, Right. Uh, you want to have a conversation with your children or beneficiaries about what they actually want. Right? Don't just assume. And uh, and then talk to a financial advisor, a lawyer, uh, in order to set it up properly. Because um, it, the issue can come about is when one child does want to you know, maintain the home and, and, and have it, the cottage, uh, where the other needs to be bought out, right? Because they want their inheritance. And if you don't set that up properly, there can be a lot of squabbling within the family, let's say. So so that's um, something, a conversation that you want to have. Uh, be open about it. These are your plans and, and go from there. Uh, what about the issues as well, that if it's not a primary residence, it's a recreational property and then having to deal with capital gains tax? Yeah, that's no fun at all, especially if people have bought uh, a vacation property many, many years ago. And so a lot of them have increased significantly in value and now are worth substantially more. Um, at death, 50% of the increase in the value, um, of course, is tax-free. It's a capital gain. But the other 50% is subject to tax. And that's, uh, you know, at the death of, say, if you have a spouse, a second spouse, or when it's transferring to anyone other than your spouse. So I think that's important to understand. So if you bought a property for $200,000, um, you know, it's currently valued at $2 million, um, you know, in 20 years, projected to be $3.6 million, let's say, uh, you know, when you pass away. That's going to be a $3.4 million gain. Um, you know, that's going to generate about $900,000 in tax. So, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Nobody loves tax. But, you know, the way around this is some people choose to insure themselves or even the kids choose to insure their parents. Uh, just so that that amount can be paid out uh, when when needed. And then also there's some free cash flow as well to pay one of the um, children or beneficiaries should they not wish to keep that cottage or cabin.
Hmm. And uh, I would imagine other things too, whether it's uh, making it a permanent rev- residence or uh, I guess the, the bottom line is to deal with it now. Don't wait for this to, to kind of s- spring up and surprise you. Yeah, exactly. You know, you want to also, when you're taking a look at um, transferring a property and, and look at that capital gains tax, you want to maximize your adjusted cost base. So all repairs, improvements to the cottage over the years, right? So that capital gain is lower. Um, you can claim capital losses to offset again. So remember, if you have losses in your portfolio, like stock portfolio, you can take some of those losses to offset that gain in that property. Um, and again, joint ownership can make it somewhat easier, but you got, there's pros and cons to that, especially if your adult child, say, has a spouse you don't like <laughs> um, and uh, they get divorced and, and so on. So you got to be careful with that joint ownership. That requires more conversation. Um, and then transferring ownership of a cottage to a trust. Uh, you'll pay capital gains up until that point of the transfer. Uh, however, future capital gains will be sheltered. But again, the con to that is you have to have another tax return. But it really depends on the size and of the property, the value of it. But definitely having that open communication um, with your children about who wants it, who doesn't, and what that's going to look like when you're no longer here. Good things to think about. Lori, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much. Great to chat with you again. You as well. Thanks, y'all. That is Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can reach her 604-695-LORI. That's L-O-R-I. With any questions you have about investing or retirement, or again, visit the website at pinkowski.ca.